Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! She's an L.A. local, and this is her first book, so let's give her an extra warm welcome, Claire Thomas. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, like she said, this is really exciting. It's my very first cookbook, so I'm nervous, but very excited about having it actually out there in the universe. Um, so yeah, I guess when it came to, I guess, should I just start the history of the cookbook? All right. <laughs> um, so I've actually, I'm a bit of a book nerd. Anyone who knows me or knows uh, the blog knows that I'm a, a bit of a bibliophile. I collect vintage cookbooks. And so for me, writing a cookbook was a very big deal. It's something I, weirdly, I actually knew. I was like, okay, if I want to write a cookbook, I should try to get a TV show because then I'll probably get to write a cookbook, like, which is such a weird way of going about it. Um, but no, I, I just am obsessed with that idea. I love the idea of um, sitting down and thinking thinking about recipes and how they could come together to form like a cohesive whole, uh, what type of story I want my book to tell, um, if I want the book to feel very personal, if I want it to feel very pragmatic, if I want it to be a bit of both. And then the photography as well, thinking about how I want the layout to be. My father started early on as a book designer. My whole family is still the graphic designers. And so uh, we, I, my, one of my first emails to my uh, publisher was lists of typefaces that I thought would be really cool. Uh, so very much uh, just excited about the entire process of it. Um, so for me, the book, my kind of joke about it is it's the cookbook I wish I had five years ago. Uh, when I first started cooking, I grew up in a family with amazing cooks. And if you grew up in a family with amazing cooks, that usually means you don't have to cook. You just have to do the dishes and eat everything. So um, I grew up surrounded by beautiful food. I grew up in LA. Uh, I grew up eating really just fresh, fun produce. Uh, my aunt and my mom, whose fingerprints are all over the cookbook, are wonderful. They're just not uh, particularly creative cooks. So they would kill like an uh, Ina Garten recipe or a Martha Stewart recipe. But uh, they didn't necessarily create things in the kitchen. And for me, um, through college, I was a big history nerd, like an obsessed history nerd. And so I kind of got into food through food history. And I started tinkering with, um, I would read about like ancient recipes, or I'd read about a recipe from the 50s. And I would try to think about, oh, I wonder if that could work in a modern kitchen. And so I would start sort of developing things myself. And I found out that I really enjoyed being playful and fun in the kitchen. I loved creating, and I loved the idea of finding I don't ways to sort of um, take flavors and present them in a way that feels fresh and new. Um, I was talking with someone here earlier about how I finally figured out the phrasing of sort of what I go for when it comes to food, which is lazy person elegance. So it looks really fancy. It looks uh, sophisticated. It looks beautiful. As a food photographer, the visual is extraordinarily important to me. But um, at the core of it, it's simple. 
It's food that a home cook can make. It's food that if you have a busy weekend or you have a job, I mean, I have a job, everyone has a job, that you can still make food that's really beautiful and that people will be impressed with or that you can eat over the sink and enjoy, you know, at 2 a.m. or something like that. So the, the book is sort of meant to speak to all those people who are trying to get creative in the kitchen, who are excited about cooking, who are excited about food, and no matter sort of where it's intersecting with you, whether you are a beginning cook, whether you've cooked all your life, but you just want to try something a little new and fun, the book is really meant to um, sort of be speaking to those people. So I think, too, the, the first line in the book, I think, <laughs> I could be wrong, um, in the introduction is, have you cried yet? Um, because I think everyone's had that experience with food where they have bitten off more than they can chew. Sorry, that's a horrible pun. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but where they have gotten overwhelmed. And the food is a burning mess. It's in the trash can. There's people waiting who are hungry. And you just feel like such a failure. And the tears, fat, salty tears roll out. And at least that's been my experience in the past when I was a new cook and I didn't really know what I was doing. And the book is really meant to sort of, I guess, be a comfort to you. Because at the end of the day, you can always order Thai food. <laughs> you can. Um, you, the great thing about food is as long as you open a window to air the smoke out, no one will know. <laughs> um, so food is something that, to me, it should be casual. It should be fun. It shouldn't be intimidating. It shouldn't be something that makes you feel less about less of yourself. It should make you feel really great about yourself and great about what you're doing for other people. And just it should be an extension of creativity. So that's kind of the core of the book and what I was going for. Um, would love to um, questions. I guess we can open it up there. I'm happy to continue going deeper into it. Yeah. Sure. Go for it. Hey. I do. Um, yes. My 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 first job in food. I was an assistant to two producers, and it wasn't very exciting. Um, so I my mom suggested, why don't you start a food blog? As if that was a thing. Um, so I kind of learned how to be a food uh, food stylist. So when I was able to quit my job as a receptionist, I, that was my first sort of job in food was uh, sorting Cheerios, <laughs> finding perfect Cheerios. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Hey, Toby. How has Los Angeles influenced your um, approach to food? Yeah. Um, well, I am an L.A. girl born and raised, so it kind of, it's inescapable in a way. I feel like if you've grown up in L.A. or even spent a lot of time here, you know that the produce is just, you're spoiled rotten by the produce. The produce is just insane. We have the most amazing, we literally live in the breadbasket of our entire country, uh, and we have so much variety uh, just available to us, and not only variety, but the quality of the variety is astonishing. And so for me, the fact that I can write a recipe as simple as, you know, get some pineapple heirlooms, slice them a quarter inch thick, put some sea salt on top, and maybe olive oil, maybe, and then enjoy. Like, that's like not a real recipe, but the produce is that amazing that you could do that. And I think for me, that sort of concept of fresh ingredient-driven cuisine has really kind of, I guess, really resonated with me. And I feel like that at its core is sort of what California cuisine is all about. It's about really being able to taste almost the terroir of the produce. You really get a sense of where the food comes from. You really understand the product you're enjoying, and you're not trying to get in the way of it. You actually are trying to allow it to shine by itself. Cool. 
Anybody else? Hey. Yeah, well, I'd say there's like, I, I'm going to compartmentalize and do two answers for you. Um, so firstly, I think that the trend towards caring about food, it's interesting, but I feel like in general, our relationship with food has been sort of, um, it's been like a pendulum where, you know, back uh, in like the 1930s and 40s, before the expansion of the highway system and before the expansion of basically food production and uh, mass agriculture, everything was really localized, everything was very regional, there's a very strong sense of identity in terms of food, and then we kind of swung to this really far opposite direction where everything was really mass produced everything you know factory farms etc cetera, etc cetera. and now I think it's that swing back to understanding hey we went like a little we went a little too far in this direction we actually need to pay attention to where our food comes from like if anyone here has seen the Jetsons <laughs> and you see them eat pills you know or like food pills and how convenient it's almost comical to think that that's what the future of food was thought to be in the 60s you know that's what people thought food was where food was going it was going to be something that you could take as a tablet but food is such a sensual, such a cultural, such a historically important sort of experience that to me the idea of uh, you know it moving towards that super futuristic pill form is like is I find it amusing. So I think this is really kind of a response to sort of the push in the factory farming kind of direction we went. So now everyone's starting to really pay attention to food. It's important. Uh, and then to your other question about why food brands have become so big and why food personalities and things like that, I think part of it is everyone has an opinion about food. Like, truly, everyone. And it's one, it's the, one of the few things, I mean, you can politicize it if you want, but it's one of the few things that you could talk to a complete stranger about and they, you will just have a great conversation. People love it. People love talking about it. They love sharing it. And so, to me, I think it's a really, if someone wants to access a large group of people, that's a really easy conversation to start. And so if you are a larger brand, like a Bethany Frankel or something like that, um, creating something that you can talk to sort of the mass market about is a really smart way to go. So food, I think, is a really easy way to access that mass market. Sorry, I was kind of long-winded. <laughs> For sure. Um, so my mom's Australian, so I grew up eating a lot of overcooked lamb and pavlova. <laughs> so um, for me, um, the two the two cultures that just I cannot get enough of are Mexican, and I'd expand that to also Central American, like Guatemalan and Salvadorian food. But then uh, Thai food. I'm like a Thai nut. Moving next to Thai town, it was like the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> so I I love those flavors, and it's interesting because I actually see a lot of parallels in sort of their flavor profiles because what I see in Mexican cuisine and what I see in Thai cuisine is this amazing sense of balance. But it's like a tightrope balance. You know, they take chances that when you try it, you're like, there's no way. I don't know. This is going to be crazy. And then you try it, you're like, this is the best thing I've ever had. But if they went one, like, just a, t a teaspoon too far in one direction, it wouldn't work. And it's, they basically have this really strong sense of the five sense, of the five tastes. So, you know, sweet, salty, sour, 
uh, and then bitter, and then there's like another one that I can't remember right now, and umami somewhere. Um, and essentially, they keep all of that in balance. So I love the idea of like in Thai food, you'll have lime, you'll have coconut, you'll have holy basil, you'll have like tons of Thai chilies, and then you'll have fish sauce, just kind of like adding a bit of funkiness to it. In Mexican cuisine, depending on where you're eating, but like I love Yucatan cuisine, that's like the best, it's so fresh. But you'll have something that's been fermented for a while, and then it'll have like, so it'll have like a bit of a pickle flavor to it, it'll have habanero, and then you'll have like some sweet flavors to it, like papaya or mango or something just amazing. So I just love the balance, and I love the excitement. So to me that's always, those are the two like sexiest cuisines ever to me. <laughs> cool, anybody else? Hey. Oh God, favorite dish in the book. Um, oh yeah, I'm just gonna I, I'm just gonna be lame about it, and because it's the first it's the first blog post I ever wrote, and it's like my family's cake. So it's the devil's food cake with seven minute frosting. Seven minutes is a total misnomer. It is definitely 30 minute frosting. <laughs> I know this because I've made it a million times and it's never seven minutes. Um, but essentially, the, what, the only thing that I added to it is I toasted it so it looks like a giant marshmallow. Because essentially it's a marshmallow. It's a seven minute frosting is um, basically what you do is you take egg whites, a uh, little bit of egg whites, sugar, water, and you cook it and you keep beating it and beating it and beating it until eventually it becomes frothy awesomeness. And then you put it on top of the devil's food cake. So it's very sweet, it's very airy and light, and it's unlike anything you've really had. It's very special. And the cool thing about it is because it's um, egg white and sugar, you can torch it like a marshmallow. So you end up getting this like more quality and I actually like it the next day because the next day it gets really crunchy on the outside which is my, my brother's nodding he agrees yes it's superior this way um, it gets crunchy on the outside which is kind of weird but really good so that's my favorite I guess they're all good though <laughs> um, anybody else yes Natalie if you had to choose a sweet treat in here mm -hmm. someone instantly fall in love with you oh god Oh man, like I'm like looking at my fiance, like which one? Which one did it? <laughs> I know, what did I make him? You know, Thai chicken wings, that's what I made him. But like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I made that on our fifth date, and he's like, marry me, whoops. <laughs> so, it's like close to accurate, by the way. Um, so, I mean, Thai chicken, week are uh, Thai chicken wings are not a dessert, but probably those. Um, I, so actually, you know what is his favorite in the world, which is hardly a recipe, but it, it, it's in the cookbook. Um, it's more of an idea, it's like a conversation, um, is pineapple with chili salt. And if you haven't tried this, if you've seen, it's summertime right now, so if you've driven around the neighborhood, on almost every corner is a Cocos Frescas stand, right? So they sell fresh fruit, and if you actually go around the corner, like the behind of the stand, you see that they have fresh limes, all these different awesome types of chilies and salts and things like that. So you can get mango with like fresh chili on top of it. It's just insane. It's the best. And so I grew up eating this. This is just like an amazing snack. But people, I feel like outside of, um, who aren't intersecting with Latin cultures, uh, don't necessarily get to experience this amazingness. Because basically what the salt and the chili does is it just amplifies the flavor of whatever fruit you're putting it on top of. So you could put it on top of mango, you could put it on top of papaya, watermelon. It just like it just makes everything a little bit better. But Craig's favorite is pineapple. 
So. <laughs> Great. Anybody else? All right. Turning it to you. <laughs> All right. Let's give Tara a big round of applause. Thanks. Oh, and I made uh, like a million cookies and brownies, so please eat a lot of them. I don't want to take them home. There's milk. So it's great. So please have as many as you like. <laughs> Woo. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.